Our text this morning is from Ruth 2, 1 through 7, which says, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. This is the living word of God for us today. Good morning, fellowship. Happy spring. It's a good day. Good to be together. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Ruth chapter two. We're going to be looking at those verses that Lindsay just read for us. While you're turning there, let me just say hello and welcome. My name is Rob. For those of you that haven't met yet, I would love to do that. Love to say hello to you. Come down front sometime after I teach. Same with Lloyd as well. We, we want to, as best as we can, put names with faces and, and be a community of faith together. If you're new to fellowship, just want to say welcome to you as well and hope to get to know you over time. We're in this series called Ordinary Providence. It's our study through the book of Ruth, and we're just taking it a couple verses at a time. We've got seven verses this morning that we're looking at. And that little thing that Lindsay said at the end of the scripture reading, this is the living word of God for us today. We actually believe that. And what we mean by that is this is God's word and the same spirit who authored it through the human authors who wrote down these words thousands of years ago, that same spirit now dwells in us and is re-speaking the word and applying it to us in our day. And I don't know what else you have planned for later in the day, but there's nothing more exciting than this, getting to hear from God speak to us. And so I want to dive in with, with you in it. Last week, Lloyd finished chapter one. This week, we're starting chapter two. You know, we say this from time to time, but I, I really mean it. If you missed last week's message, go watch it. Go listen to it on the podcast if you'd rather do it that way. I don't say that just because these are in sequential order. I say it because last week's message in particular was so good. It was, the, the way that I would describe it to you if you missed it, it was Lloyd taking the, the truth of God's word about providence and just mashing it right up against the rawness and messiness of real life. And he did that with both courage and care and grace. And it was a message that you'll want to listen to. This morning, as we begin chapter two, I thought it would be a good time to put back on, on the screen our outline of the book of Ruth. So it's up there right now. And uh, maybe you could just write the key word in next to each of the chapter headings in your Bible or in your Ruth journal that uh, you may have with you. Chapter one really was all about weeping. And the idea was God's providence is hard. And, and Lloyd really kind of put an exclamation point on that last week. This week, we start chapter two. God's providence is hard to see. And so I'm going to write the word, our key word for this chapter here on the screen. It's the word 
working. We're going to talk today about working, specifically God's work, but also some of our work. We're not just starting a new chapter, but the tone of the whole book is shifting at this point in time. And I love the, the way that, that Joe and the others that have designed our stage set, they're sort of just building this scene as we go. And you may have noticed this morning, you've got more ears of grain or whatever that stuff is back there, amber waves of grain or something that is behind us that seems to be growing as we go through this. This morning, the tone of the text shifts. We've been in this hard, hard time in Naomi and Ruth's life. And at this point in the story, things haven't materially changed for them, but there's about to be hope. In fact, I want to pick it up on the last verse of chapter one, which is a verse that Lloyd covered last week because it's our first hint of things to come. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her who returned from the country of Moab and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now, if you've not been with us in this series, the story starts with a famine in Bethlehem. And the famine in Bethlehem is what leads this family, led by the patriarch Elimelech, to leave and sojourn or you know, travel to and stay for a while in a foreign country, the country of Moab. And there, Elimelech dies. The two grown sons that they had also both died. But before they died, they got married and they married Moabite women. One was named Orpah, the other was named Ruth. And now that food is back again in Judah. Naomi, who's now a widow with her two daughters-in-law, also widows, she decides to go back and she encourages the daughters-in-law, stay with your family because your future is much better if you stay in Moab where you're not a foreigner. You can remarry and, and you'll be okay. Orpah does the sensible thing and returns to her family, but Ruth clings to Naomi. In fact, she makes a vow that she will never leave Naomi's side. And she calls upon Naomi's God, who is now Ruth's God, the one true God, Yahweh Elohim. And she says, I'm making this covenant before God that I will never leave you. And so now they've returned back to Bethlehem and by God's providence and God's timing, they're arriving just at the beginning of the harvest. And that's gonna be a very important foreshadowing as we walk into the text this morning. From that verse, let's go into our first verse, chapter two, verse one. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. More foreshadowing. A new character is suddenly dropped into the story. Like right when things are at their lowest for Ruth and Naomi, the author introduces us to a new character. It reminds me of uh, the, the, one of my favorite movies growing up was the Disney version, the original animated version of Beauty and the Beast. Okay, I'm a, I like some guy movies too, but I'm not ashamed to admit I'm a sucker for a good musical. And I love Beauty and the Beast. Did you know it was the first animated movie ever nominated for Best Picture Academy Award. Now you do. So I, I waited until my daughters were old enough where I thought they could appreciate this movie and, you know, played it for them, put in the DVD and played it for them, and I built it up, you know. And so the movie starts, if you, for those of you that have seen it, most of you probably, it starts with this sort of this um, dark scene where it's a prologue and it tells the story of this prince, this selfish prince who was turned into a beast by this enchantress. You know, because she refused, or he refused rather, to give her shelter from the bitter cold. And so here's how the prologue ends. It says, as the years passed, he fell into despair and lost all hope. For who could ever learn to love a beast? And right at that moment, 
the music changes from a minor key to a major key. And right at that moment, the scene changes from nighttime to morning time. And you see Belle come out of her house and start down the path toward the village. And I remember pausing the movie with my girls. I said, oh my goodness, this is so good. Did you catch the foreshadowing? (laughs) They looked at me and they're like, dad, you're so weird. (laughs) Which is true. I don't want you to miss the foreshadowing. This is exactly what's happening right here in, you, in Ruth. Up to this point, the, the tone of the book's kind of been on this minor key. It's sort of been this, this dark story and the score changes right here to a major key. We meet Boaz walking down the pathway toward the village, so to speak. And so that reminded me, sometimes I, I think we fail to read the Bible as literature. Here's what I mean by that. The Bible is composed of all kinds of genres. It's, it's historical narrative, it's poetry, it's prophecy, it's, it's all these things put together and it's brilliant writing. It doesn't mean it's not true. Just because it's written well, just because it's good literature doesn't also mean it's God's word. So the genre of Ruth is historical narrative and what you find when you study Ruth is it's a very well-written story but don't let that make you think it's not true. It's historical narrative, but it was written down in a very artistic kind of way. Now, why did God do that? It's a reminder to me that God gifts certain people with unique gifts to accomplish his purposes. And God wanted the story of Ruth and Naomi to be a story that would be read and retold and cherished and reheard for thousands of years across hundreds of different cultures, billions of different people. And he wanted it to be recorded in a way that would endure. And so he gifted some author, we don't even know who wrote this book, with unique literary skill to write down this true story about Ruth and Naomi. And we get to enjoy some of that, you know, literary artistry, even as we read it. By the way, here's a quick application. Have you ever considered the idea that you are uniquely gifted and given unique experiences for God to do a unique work through you? I'm not saying you're gonna write the next great novel necessarily. I'm not saying that you know thousands of years from now people will still be talking about you. That's not the point. We don't even know who this author was. It wasn't about them. The point is, according to Ephesians 2.10, you are his workmanship. You are his masterpiece. That's what that word means, by the way. And not only that, why why did he create you? You were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared for you beforehand that you would walk in them. I hope that's encouraging to you. I hope that's hopeful for you. You have a part to play in God's providence. Now, before we move on to verse two, I want to talk briefly about what we already know about Boaz just from this one verse, just from the introduction to Boaz. Just look at it again if you would put this verse back on the screen. We, we know he was of the clan of Elimelech and we know he was a quote unquote worthy man. Those are both very important. Let me re-put this illustration on the screen. We talked about this in week two. This is how the structure, the Israelite society at that time was structured. And in fact, all these ancient cultures in the, the Near East were sort of structured the same way. It's a patriarchal society. 
Now, to, to us, that, that means it was a just chauvinistic society, and, and, and yes, it actually really was, but I want to go even deeper than that and explain this is how the society was, was actually structured. You had the patriarch who was at the center of the community. If, if you... Um, uh, were a, a person, any human being at this point in time, you would identify yourself first by the patriarch's household that you were a part of. This is the Hebrew for it. Beit means house. Ab means father. So this was the house of the father. So which Beit Ab did you belong to? That was the first point of your uh, identity. The second was your clan. This was a combination of a lot of these Beit Abs. There were probably typically hundreds or thousands of people in this extended family, you know, the clan of so-and-so. And they would, they would name, you know, the, the ancestor that sort of started that clan. Then there was the tribe. Now, there were only 12 tribes in Israel. So there's a lot of people in each tribe. And then, of course, the whole nation. So you would identify yourself. I am Rob, the son of Robert Sweet. You know, that's the, the, the patriarch's house that I'm a part of. I'm a part of this extended clan of the Sweets and the so-and-sos, et cetera. I'm part of the tribe of Benjamin or whatever tribe you're from of the nation of Israel. Now, this is just a reminder. Why did this matter so much? Well, you were dependent on the patriarch to provide for you. So if this patriarch died, which is the case that happened in, uh, in Naomi and, and Ruth, you were all of a sudden outside of protection and provision. So here's Naomi and Ruth. They are outside of society. Their only hope would be for someone from their clan to graft them back in under a new bait ob, bring them back in society. This is what the Bible means by Redemption. Now, why do I remind you all of this? It matters that Boaz was of the clan of Elimelech. That's not just some trivial fact the author is telling us. It matters also that, that Boaz was a worthy man. What does that mean in that context? Well, it means that he was a man of integrity, yes, but even more than that, it meant that he was a man of means. He had some substantial wealth because you had to have some wealth to take on additional people, especially in, in a time of poverty. So the, the idea is planted in the reader's mind. Maybe Boaz could redeem the story of Ruth and Naomi. Now, armed with this inside information, let's keep reading. Verse two, and Ruth the Moabite, it's a reminder that she's not from there, said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. Let's talk about gleaning. It's certainly a key word in this book. It's something that we need to understand. Gleaning uh, in that day meant to walk behind those who were harvesting the crop and pick up whatever scraps that they left behind. It wasn't much. Uh, maybe a rough equivalent would be, uh, you know, someone who's, collecting aluminum cans, you know, in an urban area and just, you know, selling them and making a little bit of money. Or and I heard one commentator use the analogy of dumpster diving, in a sense. This is a little bit about what was going on. It was the work that the poorest of the poor did when they had no other means to survive. It was hard work. It was humble work. And for a young unmarried woman like Ruth, who was not under the protection of a patriarch, it could be dangerous work. 
She was a foreigner to boot. You know, the author's reminding us of that. So this was a, a vulnerable position for her to be in. So she says, notice, let me go to the field and glean, etc." And then she has this interesting little phrase here. After him in whose sight I shall find favor. She's essentially entrusting her safety, her security, and her provision to someone out there. She doesn't know who it might be, but she's trusting that God's going to lead her to somebody that will show her favor. In other words, for Ruth and Naomi to make it, they were going to have to be dependent on the compassion and kindness of others. Here's the good news. Working to their advantage was a little law in the, in the law of Moses. Let me put it on the screen. This is from Leviticus 23:22. This is part of God's law for the people of Israel. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. There's the, there's the scraps. You don't, don't touch them, God's saying. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Now, when you and I think of God's law, we usually just think of spiritual things, religious things. But remember the law of Moses was given to a nation to be their civil law as well. And so in it, you find all kinds of rules that are related to caring for people in society. And in this case, this is about the marginalized, those that are not landowners, specifically those that are not attached to a patriarch and a Beit Av, those exactly in Ruth in Naomi's situation. The other thing to point out, that last phrase, I am the Lord your God, like to us, we read that and it just sounds like this is God just sort of putting his foot down saying, thus saith the Lord, is more than that. What God is saying here is he's saying, I am the Lord your God. My identity is one who cares about the poor and the sojourner. This is why I want you to do this because you are representing me. You are reflect, reflecting my image, so live this way. So God's law was on their side. Here's the bad news. This was the time of the judges. What do we know about the time of the judges? In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So let's say you are a landowner in this culture. And sure, maybe you were taught at one point in time, you're not supposed to plow your field and harvest your field right up to the very edges. But you've got a lot of mouths to feed. You can't let anything go to waste. In other words, the, the law of gleaning from Leviticus worked against your own self-interest. And during the time when everyone did what was right in his own eyes, it was the exception for someone to obey the law of gleaning, not the rule. And so God had built into this Hebrew law from Leviticus, this provision for people exactly in Ruth and Naomi's situation, but they were still dependent on finding someone who would work against his own self-interest and in alignment with God's interest. And so Ruth goes out to glean, and the question in the reader's mind is, will she find such a one? You know, will she find someone who will do what is right in God's eyes, not in their own eyes? Someone willing to work against their own self-interest to be a representative of God's character and be an instrument of God's providence. Verse 3. 
So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Notice he put that back in there, you know. Now we know why the narrator introduced us to Boaz earlier. It was for this moment. He wanted you as a reader to say, oh, wait, a worthy man, a God-fearing man who's of the right clan. She happened to come into his portion of the field. Now, this is where knowing a little bit of Hebrew is kind of fun because in the Hebrew, it's sort of hidden in the English a little bit, but in the Hebrew, there's a literary device that the author is using that makes it very clear that he's exaggerating the, the happened to. In other words, and I'll tell you what the literary device is in a second, but, but a good way to translate this would be to put quotation marks right here. Now, how, how do I know that it can be read that way? In the Hebrew, there's two words back to back that he uses that both mean chance. The first is a verb. The second is a noun. It's like he's He's using redundancy to call your attention. It just so happened. Maybe paraphrase it this way. What are the chances by some crazy coincidence, wink, wink, she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz? And that's what's going on in the Hebrew. Now, this is one of my favorite moments in the whole book because this is as close to we get as uh, to the author pulling back the curtain of providence. And, and pointing to, to God and, and just sort of saying, I want to show you who's really doing all this. He's, and he's using this little literary desk. She just so happened to. Just, you kind of hear what he's trying to say. The message that this author, you know, from verse one throughout the whole book is trying to communicate is there is no happenstance in God's world. Now, speaking of chance... Let's look at verse four. And behold, who should come but Boaz? Right at that moment. And he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. They answered, the Lord bless you. Behold means look. Again, these are all these little small things the author is doing that's just so rich. It's just look, like guess what? Guess who came right at that moment? Surprise, surprise, Boaz came then from Bethlehem. Uh, this greeting, the Lord be with you, they answered, the Lord bless you, might have been a common greeting of the day. Some think in the harvest time it was a common greeting, but it's also another clue from the narrator that Boaz is a God-fearing man. He is a worthy man, so to speak. And then let's, let's read the rest of our text and unpack it. And Boaz said to his young man in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. So here's the scene that Boaz would have come on. In the field, there would have been men and women working, doing the harvest, not just men. And uh, the way it worked was they, the men would go through and they, they would grab the, the stalks of grain with their left hand and then they would have the sharp sickle in their right hand and, and they would cut it and then they would kind of hold it like this 
gather another one and cut it, hold it like this. Well, at some point in time, what happens is your arms get too full. And so then they would, would lay this down and then the women would come behind and the women would, would gather all this up, you know, as much as they could. They would tie it in bundles. Then the gleaners would come behind them. And if there were any scraps left over, so this, you know, would be picked up and put on a cart, you know, it was probably pulled by an ox or something. And whatever was left, these would have been little bitty scraps. And, you know, Ruth or any other gleaners would come and, oh, actually, here, here's one. You know, I can't get much food from that. I mean, there wasn't much. So Boaz obviously knew all his workers. It's not as if Ruth would have been the only woman there. There were other women there, but he knows that he does not recognize her. And so the question he asks is interesting. Whose young woman is this? Now, this sounds to our ears like, it's not a kind way to ask that question. Whose young woman is this? But remember in that culture, people were identified by the patriarch's house that they were a part of. So what Boaz was asking was, whose patriarch's house does she belong to? I don't know her. I don't recognize her. This was a relatively small town at this time. The response of the, the servant is, he essentially says, she's not part of a Beit Ab. She's not part of a patriarch's house. She's a foreigner, you know? She's this, the young woman, Moabite woman. You may, may have heard of her. Boaz, and in fact, it turns out Boaz has heard of her. We'll, we'll get to that part next week. But she's the one that came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. In other words, the, the servant is just trying to explain, but what he's essentially saying is she does not belong to a patriarch. I want to pause here. Remember, there's more than meets the eye. Let me ask you, whose young woman is this? Somebody say, you know the answer. Whose young woman is this? God's, yes, it's God's. When Ruth attached herself to Naomi, she attached herself to Naomi's God. Remember that? Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Now, this servant doesn't have eyes to see all that, of course, and you know, he, he's not there to give theological answers. He's just giving an answer. But, but we as the reader, we know she's not just some woman. She's a part of God's house. God's her caregiver. God's her patriarch. So now the worthy man from the clan of Elimelech has set eyes on the loyal young woman who has come from Moab and the stage is set for Ruth and Boaz to meet which we will have to wait until next week to hear about. In my mind, I picture a Jewish father you know, telling this story to his kids and at some point he just says, time for bed. And they're like, oh, dad, you know, five more minutes. It's just getting good. Well, what's the lesson for us this morning from this part of the text? There is a great deal to talk about from this passage in terms of the dynamics of God's work in our work. And we don't have long to unpack it, but I, I just want to give you a thought or two. In other words, I wonder if you've, as we've emphasized God's providence so much in this series, you know, God's in control, God's providence, God's up to this. Have you been asking yourself, well, do we have any part to play? 
Have you been wondering, maybe, do my actions matter? What is God responsible for? What am I responsible for? How does all that work? These are such interesting questions. It would be fun to do a whole seminar on this topic, and even then we would only scratch the surface. But I want to suggest just one thought to ponder together, one simple idea. Maybe think of this as a little principle from our text this morning that just starts us down the road about thinking about these interesting questions. What is God's part? What is my part? Here's what we're called to do, and and I'll put this on the screen. It's simply this. Work small and trust God to work big. In other words, as God is accomplishing his will in the world, what is our job? Work. What are we responsible for ultimately? Not the big stuff. You can trust God with the big stuff. So what do we do? Work small. Trust him to work big. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean you shouldn't have big dreams, you know, God-given ambitions and and visions. I mean, some some of you are dreaming about ministries and businesses, and those are all good things. But but I just want to take it down for just a minute. And I want to unpack this principle this morning. Work small, trust God to work big. Ruth and Boaz give us two great examples of this principle in action. Ruth had no power to redeem Naomi or herself. Ruth could not bring Naomi and and her own self back into that society and be cared for and protected. But what could Ruth do? She could get up in the morning and glean. Now, best case scenario, Ruth's going to come back with enough to provide for herself and Naomi for a a day or two. You know, that's what's in Ruth's mind. That's probably best case scenario. That's not going to do a whole lot. But just because the work is small does not make it insignificant. Gleaning is small work. It's not for those with a lot of pride. But Ruth was willing to work small and trust God to work big behind the scenes. Let's talk about Boaz. It was just a small little part of the law that commanded him as a landowner to leave the the edges of the field unharvested for the poor And in fact, what Boaz was asked by God to give up was not a lot. It was just a little. But Boaz was willing to be obedient in the small thing, even at his own personal cost, so that God could use it to do something big. Work small. Trust God to work big. Now, as I've thought about this, there's actually a lot of hope in this. Let let me explain. Here's what this means. If you can grab onto this principle and say, okay, I do have a part to play in this. I'm going to do the next thing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do whatever God calls me to in this little moment. And most of the times it's going to be these little small things and let God work behind the scenes to do the big things. If you can grab onto that principle, here's what that means. Every small decision you make in faith matters. It means every unselfish act you do that even goes unseen by any other person matters. It means every single prayer you pray matters. Every tear you shed for someone who's hurting. Every word of grace and compassion, every arm you put around someone, every small thing you do in faith is a part of providence. 
takes my breath away to really think about that. And here's why. I, I, I want to just take this one, one more layer, and, and then we'll, we'll give the final invitation to life. Of course, God is perfectly capable of supernatural provision. You see that from time to time, even in our day. Okay, there's miracles. I, there's no question in my mind. God is fully capable, and he still does miracles. You see miracles in the Bible. But, but you know, of all the pages in this book, if, if we could take out everything except the miracle pages, the Bible would be tiny, tiny. What does that mean? Most of God's work is being accomplished in ordinary life. In fact, most of God's work isn't even being accomplished directly by God. It's being accomplished by God's image. It's being accomplished by God's representatives. That is ordinary providence. So here's our invitation to life this morning. Choose one small thing to do in faith this week. Trusting God to work big. Now, for some of you, and, and I'm wired a little bit this way, okay? Working small sounds uninviting. It doesn't sound like an invitation. What do you mean small? I want to do big things. I want to dream big dreams and these kinds of things. And again, there, there's, there's places for that. But, but I, this morning, I, I just want to humble ourselves a little bit. You know, we, we don't have as much power sometimes as we think we do. If that sounds like you, like, you know, someone wired a little like me, it's like, well, what about the big things? Um, this, this week can be an invitation for you to a deeper dependence on God. And where that will lead you is rest because there's a lot of contentment to be found in trusting God with your limitations, not just your gifts. So if you're wired like me, intentionally do a small thing this week, but do it in faith. Do it something that you don't even think will be noticed, but do it in faith. You're trusting God to work big behind the scenes. Now, you know, for some of you, you're wired a little bit differently and, and it's like you don't feel very powerful at all. In, in fact, there, there's at least in one area of your life, this is probably true for all of us, where you wish something was different, but you feel you have no power to change it. You're probably right. You have no power to change it, but God may be calling you to work. God may be calling you to get up in the morning and glean just a little. But Rob, what difference does it make? My marriage is so far gone. My kid is so far gone. My, my, this health thing, this, this financial part that we have, what difference does it make? Work small. Trust him to work big. And we, we put these slides up here every week as our application, but I, some, some of y'all grab onto them and do them, some of you don't. But listen, here's an opportunity. It's an invitation. Pick something tangible. I'm really serious about this. I read your prayer requests. By the way, thanks for sending those in. Keep sending those in. We pray for them. We do in our elders and in other teams and our staff and other volunteers that pray for these things. When I look at prayer requests, there's some themes that I see. And I just want to speak to this as you think about what's one small thing you could do. A lot of you have struggling marriages right now. Marriage is hard. What would be one small thing you can do this week to move toward your spouse? Just small, maybe even unnoticed, probably unappreciated oftentimes. One thing you could do 
Work small, trust God to work big. Some of you are struggling with financial provision right now. What would it look like for you to glean this week? What would it look like for you? I'm gonna set aside my pride. I'm just gonna do this one next step. I'm gonna work small, trust God to work big. Some of you right now are in a work situation. You're just not finding any significance. It's like, does it even matter? Remember, there's more than meets the eye. And do the small thing that God has put in your hand. Now, perhaps there is no better illustration of something small representing so much than the communion elements that you picked up on your way in. So I wanna invite you to take those up. Go ahead and peel back just the the first layer to get the bread in your hand. And and I wanna explain something to you while you do this. And by the way, if you didn't get one of these coming in and you are a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ, we want you to participate in this with us. So don't be ashamed just to get up and go grab one in the back right now. We would love for you to be a part of this with us. Now, from the beginning of time, God's plan was to offer life to all through the obedience of one. That was kind of a small plan with huge results. On the one hand, you could say there's nothing small about the work of Jesus Christ. And you would be so right. But on the other hand, if you think about the incarnation, it was exactly about God becoming small. And if you think of most of the life, you know, Jesus lived roughly 33 years. He did a lot of miracles, yes, but they were all concentrated in these last three years. What do you think he was doing for the first 30? Ordinary life. And so what Jesus was modeling for us, in fact, even more than model, what Jesus was doing on our behalf was ordinary life in a way that was simply obeying the Father in every small thing. That's exactly what I have not done and what you have not done. This is his provision for you. He did it for us. Jesus stooped low to serve. God became small so that we could be brought back into the big picture, the big story, so that we could be redeemed. With that in mind, let us eat this bread in remembrance of Jesus. And go ahead now and peel that foil layer off the cup and and prepare to drink it. This little cup of juice is not much, is it? If you're really thirsty this morning, this will do nothing to quench your thirst. But it points to something so significant. The Father using the small to accomplish the big And as we drink this in a moment, in faith, we're proclaiming that we believe. And Jesus said, all it takes is tiny faith. The size of a mustard seed kind of faith can move mountains. Your tiny little faith and what the blood of Jesus means for you, his life, his death, his resurrection, means the world of difference for your future and your present. It means you're in. It means you're redeemed. So let us, with our small faith, drink the cup.
Father, thank you for taking things that are small and working them to your providence, which is so beautiful and so complete and so whole. And Father, the prayer of our hearts is that we would respond with faith, with obedience, and with worship. And so we do that now in the name of Jesus. Let's all stand to our feet. We're gonna sing one more song that puts beautiful words to this idea of what God has done on our behalf. Let's sing together.